0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Black Brazilians are dying by the tens of thousands from COVID-19 and from police bullets on the streets. Slavery was all about money, and insurance companies collected their share of the profits in human flesh. And a Black scholar says midwives can help reduce the high rates of death among birth mothers and their babies. But first, activists around the country are commemorating Black August in honor of the political prisoners who are still incarcerated half a century after the crushing of the Black Liberation Movement. We spoke with Jihad Abdul-Mumit, the chairperson of the Jericho Movement, and a former Black Panther Party political prisoner who spent 23 years behind bars. The Jericho Movement is part of the Black is Back Coalition, which this weekend holds its national conference, where Jihad Abdul-Mumit will speak on the significance of Black August.
2: Black August started in San Quentin with George Jackson and those comrades there to highlight the armed struggles, to be very blunt, the history of those struggles in and around this country. And there's a lot of events that happened throughout time. I'm here in in Richmond, even Gabriel Prosser in 1800, Nat Turner, In 1832, there's a lot of things that happened, a lot of birthdays, a lot of significant events. And so what Jericho attempts to do, as many other sisters and brothers throughout the United States attempt to do, is to utilize this month on a personal note, to collectively draw strength, we fast, we work out, we study. We do good deeds. We check in with one another. Not that we shouldn't be doing this at any other time, but we really accentuate that during the month of Black August. For the public, is concerned. We educate people. We try to organize events so that people can become in tune with what it means for self-determination in those type of struggles and not to be afraid of that, to recognize the political reality that we're in in the United States of America and these struggles that have, in the past, are reflective of the conditions that protesters in the street are still fighting. Police violence, racism, and then even further health disparities, marginalization, impoverishment of our communities. And so, yes, yeah, so Black August is very significant to uphold the names of political prisoners and get people to know who they are, to support them, and to develop the demand to free each and every last one of them.
3: On a fundamental level, it's a struggle just to get people to understand that there are political prisoners in the United States. Uh, Jericho maintains a list of political prisoners. Most of them are from the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, but there are also prisoners on your list who still languish in jail from the Republic of New Africa and from lots of different kinds of movements. There are anarchists on your lists. There are anti imperialists on your lists and other examples of people who have been put in prison because of their political activities. But the United States government continues to maintain that it doesn't have any political prisoners and never has.
2: Uh-huh. Right, indeed. And this is just to show you how effective the brainwashing and indoctrination is. Even in talking about our institutions, the remission or the lack of mentioning in context that young children, teenagers, adolescents get going through school, college students. A brother, a friend of mine, an attorney now, brother, Naji Mujahid, who you may know, Glenn, he was on a talk show with me, just going to capture what you're saying. Even in our institutions, not mentioning and putting in context This brother, he's a lawyer now in Philadelphia, and I'm so proud of him. He does so much work in helping political prisoners and helping people in the community. And he said that when he was going to law school, one of the cases that they analyzed was the case of Huey P. Newton and the killing of Officer Frey, F-R-E-Y. And he said when his law class dissected this case, the instructor never mentioned, and there was no context whatsoever, that he was even in the Panther Party and the social political ramifications surrounding this case. They only mentioned the the technical law points. So even students that were going through that class that didn't know about the Panther Party or or who actually Huey P. Newton was, it was just an individual charged with murdering a cop and here's how the arraignment process went and the bail process and this and that. So even in these institutions of learning, it's just not by mentioning, by omission, let alone the blatant lies. So I guess the point I'm making is that people are so ignorant and they're so invested in chasing the carrot in this materialist society. It has an egregious effect on a lot of us. And, you know, the whole seems like it's counterintuitive, the whole effort is to make better your welfare and your existence in this society. But in the process of doing that, you sell your own soul because you know the United States has become what it is, as al Malik El-Sarabah said, on the back of slaves, the blood of slaves. And we, myself included, for well, the uh, Germans, I can talk about, my car and my rental home and my yard and my house. It's really we enjoy these benefits by the continued exploitation of world resources and imperialism, and we have no idea the impact of our ignorance. We have to argue and beg Black activists, Black academics, Black people to recognize that we have freedom fighters. I mean, we're in the age, Glenn, where we have cell phones, we can look, we can Google anybody's name or anything in a matter of seconds, and we still don't have the context. That just shows how effective this materialist society has been, in just having us focus on our individual selves at the expense of our whole community and our very existence. Very, the propaganda is very effective. There are no political prisoners in the United States, and people believe it.
3: Lots of comparisons have been made between the current movement, which mobilized more numbers by some counts than any previous movement in U.S. history, and the movement of the 60s and the 70s. Well, one thing that stands out as a difference between these two movements is the chants, the slogans. We remember the slogans that mobilize millions, Free Huey, Free Bobby, Free Angela, uh, free the Wilmington 10, free all kinds of folks who were becoming political prisoners at that time. But today, when we still have scores of that era's political prisoners languishing in jail and new political prisoners having joined those ranks, we don't hear those kinds of chants and slogans about freeing political prisoners.
2: Right. And no, we don't. And I think that was surgically removed and people have fallen into that ignorant remission of not mentioning them. And I think the powers that be over a period of time, it just didn't happen overnight, to try to eliminate any vestiges or remnants or memories of those type of struggles, which include armed struggles, to really change the structure of society. So now as militant as the demonstrations and protests are, and I salute what's going on. So don't get me wrong. salute what's going on. It's not condemning or demeaning or anything like that. It's just the difference is that when we talk about self-determination, when we talk about building a new society, when we talk about separating ourselves from this capitalist madness, it's not quite the same when we're talking about reforming that and making, quote-unquote, radical adjustments, if you will. And we're not talking about armed struggle. Those struggles back then was cut into the chase. And a lot of it, you know, involved armed struggle if necessary. And somebody listening to this may think that is, was so futile and idealistic and foolish. At, you know, you can assess it from 50 years later. But in the heat of that, you know, those demonstrations were even more vicious. You're talking about how when Donald Trump came out to do his Bible stand across from Lafayette Park there, how the police pushed everybody back and sprayed pepper gas. Well, if you go back in 1968, look at some of them demonstrations or in the 60s, you know, where they had high-power water holes and flavorfully smashing your brains in. Well, get ready for the fight. But it was much different when you're talking about actually radically changing something and picking up a gun and doing it. And so they don't want that to ever resurface again. And that's another conversation about what that would even look like in this day and age. But it's just making sure that the powers that be and through the institutions glorify a certain type of struggle and we make sure that people don't have any connections with anything that would even be a semblance of armed struggle or the building of socialist government or self-determination for people and going about it the way it was being done then. So it's purposely disconnected. And if you connect political prisons with that, that's a connection you don't want because it's going to lead you to the path of realizing this is what was happening then and done. And this may be what has to be happening now and done albeit different changes to fit the time. So I think it's surgically removed like that. But I just want to draw a parallel, an example. One time in Dick Gregory's book, you probably read it, Tell No Lies or something to that effect, long, long, long time ago. But then there he had a scenario that the United States in upholding this facade of democracy is like a tea kettle boiling water on the stove. You know, the boiling water is our social and economic and political condition, oppressive conditions and unrest that goes along with that. And then they put a hole in the top of the tea kettle so it can whistle and steam so that tea kettle doesn't blow. That whistling and steaming is the facade of democracy, your First Amendment right to demonstrate and protest. See, people can demonstrate and protest, not like any other country, fine and good, but it's not really going too much. I mean, there's things that we can talk about that has happened, Civil Rights Bill 63 and all of that type of things like that, which we all enjoy and get benefit from. That is true, but a superpower of materialist society, industrialized society that we live in today, that whistling at the teakettle is important to show that there is democracy here, unlike any other quote unquote country around the world. And if you was to plug that up, that teakettle would blow up and burn everything in this kitchen, which is revolution. So our ability to protest in the street and throw rocks and burn some property, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all part of this society that we live in to maintain the very, very existence of this society. And if you get too much out of range, out of hand, we'll pluck you off and we'll send you to prison for the rest of your life or we'll blow you away in the street. But for the most part, everybody can protest unlike any other country. And it adds to the facade of democracy because the stuff ain't changing.
3: And you pointed out earlier that folks today have many more opportunities, more means to communicate with each other, the whole phenomenon of social media. But it also is true that the state has many more means available to spy on people and to designate people, as the FBI has begun doing, as Black identity extremists, which seems to be the term of art when targeting (laughs) folks like us.
2: That terminology is very important (laughs) for the... Identifying and ostracizing of those of us that may take the position of defending our communities with weapons is to utilize our Second Amendment right. It's a definite difference looking at a black woman or a black man, black youth, or a person of color with a rifle or sunglasses on walking down the street as opposed to a, somebody that's white and dressed in fatigues and practicing their Second Amendment right. One causes alarm, one causes acceptance. Okay. So, yes, but those struggles, like I said, we want to put them in a certain category and have the, the general public remain as distant as we can away from that. Because look at the mayhem and chaos that could cause into your society. And for the most part, Glenn, there is a fear of the state. I mean, we can kill each other left and right in the hood, but one police officer can roll behind a, a car full of people that are together and pull that car over, everybody out, have them all sitting on the curb until backup comes. Because it's not the fear of that white cop, personally, it's the fear of the state and the fear of the repercussions and what is before you. But when it comes to each other, do know, there's no fear at all. We'll rise to the occasion quick, fast, in a hurry. But that goes into the indoctrination and brainwashing that we have had for decades now. It's just that, that fear that gutted us. And once again, I always use the example, Glenn, but by all means, it is not a criticism for anybody listening. It's just an observation for us to build on and to reflect on that when we walk out of a store and see somebody being killed, a black person being killed, such as George Floyd, with somebody's boot on their neck. Boot on their neck. How classical of a phrase. Knee on the neck for eight minutes, not 60 seconds. It wasn't someone running across the street and all of a sudden they got shot in the back or somebody running through the yard. That's egregious within itself. But for somebody to lay there and everybody can pull out cameras and look and mull around, you know, for eight minutes while he pleads for his dead mother, nobody wants to walk out of a 7-Eleven or a Wawa and see that and be confronted with the reality of, oh, my gosh, what should I do? They're killing this pregnant woman. They're killing this brother. They're killing this person. What should I do? Nobody wants to be in that situation. Granted, not even I. But if you are, now what? Now that we've seen the specter of George Floyd, now what are we going to do? We're going to let somebody be lynched, hung, whipped to death, castrated in front of our own eyes, and we can just take a picture, and then we're going to rely on the system to incarcerate that person, and that's how does that fit with the uh, Bauer's prison movement. We're going to put him in prison. Now we want him to go in prison. Okay, so so much to reflect on about what we can do, but I think a bottle should have been hurled through the air right upside that cop's head and let the action flow. Because we cannot tolerate a white person putting their neck on a sister or brother or anybody for that length of time. And he pleads for our life. And the only action we can possibly do is take a picture, send it to the government, hope they'll, they'll prosecute the person and send them to jail. No, we got to reflect. And it's not an easy answer, sisters and brothers. This is not an easy answer, but I hope Black August gives us the strength to reflect on what should we do. God forbid if that happens again, and you can believe it will, what will be our action then? And there's a word called sacrifice. And what is this sacrifice? And each and every one of us have to think about it, including me, Jihad abdu Mami. I have three children, I got a family, I'm, I'm married. What's the sacrifice if that, if that light shines on you at that moment? The struggle is not pleasant, but it's just something to think about. So listening audience is not a criticism of anybody that was witnessing that by no means. Love and respect everybody, it's just a matter of reflection and how are we gonna build and strengthen ourselves with a go round, which is probably happening right now as we speak in some city in the United States.
1: That was Jihad Abdul Mumit of the Jericho Movement speaking from Richmond, Virginia. Brazil has the largest black population outside of Africa and is among the top three COVID 19 hotspots on the planet, along with the United States. Brazilian social anthropologist Jaime Amparo Alves teaches at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He's written a book on Brazilian police terror against Blacks and is busy raising funds for Black families caught in the coronavirus epidemic. Dr. Amparo Alves notes that Blacks in Brazil and the U.S. have another thing in common, white supremacist presidents.
4: This is a very tragic moment in Brazilian history. When we think about Bolsonaro, this means is openly racist president. But although we recognize that, I would push the listeners of the Black Agenda Report to consider Bolsonaro as a product of the Brazilian society. We should not we should not commit the mistake to think about Bolsonaro as an exception. Although we have like for. 12 or 16 years, the workers Party left the leftist government in Brazil, and they are clearly different from Bolsonaro or like the Democrats, different from Trump. When we come to consider the condition of the black people in Brazil throughout the history of black Brazil, the experience of the black Brazilians has always been an experience of terror, of racial terror. Bolsonaro is only bringing these genocidal stages to a new level, a new scale, but this has always been there, and that's what characterized the Brazilian society, actually.
3: But tell us about how COVID-19 has affected Black Brazil, which has been marginalized in almost every arena of life, including healthcare. Exactly. So that is a very important question because we don't have reliable
4: data yet about the impact of the COVID-19 on the black population. But as somebody from the black movement and somebody else that, was, that grew up in the favelas, I know the fact that 80% of the population, of the Brazilian population, that relies on the public health system are black. Because those that can afford to go to private hospital, the overwhelming majority are white. So 80% of those that rely on the public health system is the black
1: population.
4: So that is the way we can see the connection there, because most of the people that are dying are the ones that rely on the public health system. Bolsonaro wants to destroy, to dismantle the public health system. The system is collapsed in many cities, in major cities of Brazil, they, it has collapsed. It collapsed in small cities that was already precarious, that they, they didn't have like intensive care units available. And then we have like this extraordinary number of the people that are sent home to dust. So besides the tragic number that we already have, that you see the majority of the people that are dying, the ones that rely on public hospitals, and the majority of them are black people, we have also those that are not even counted as deaths related to the COVID-19. We have now a skyrocketing number of people that have died for unclear conditions or respiratory conditions not counted as COVID-19. I think in the future, when scholars take a closer look at this number, we will see the scale of this genocide. And I'm telling genocide here, genocide is not an overstatement. The black movement has filed petitions in the international trials trying to bring Bolsonaro and his government to trial, charging him for genocide.
3: Yes, you've written a book titled The Anti-Black City, Police Terror, and Black Urban Life in Brazil, in which you lay out your contention that Brazil's elites have mobilized the police and all kinds of other forces in an effort to expel blacks from Sao Paulo and around Rio de Janeiro and all those places that they are not wanted. Exactly. It just Clearly, what happened throughout the country, just to
4: give you like an example here, the Brazilian Forum of Public Security, they just released the data that in 2018, 6,220 people were killed by the police. Every single day, 17 Brazilians were killed by the police. Can you imagine that?
3: And so how can people possibly talk about a racial democracy, much less a health democracy, in a country where hundreds of black people are sometimes shot down in the streets of cities by cops every week? Exactly.
4: We can't talk about this. Part of the Brazilian academia that is complicit with this genocide, mostly white scholars in Brazil, continues to hold this Meet of racial democracy, but the reality is that Brazil is an apartheid society, it's a society organized and funded on black genocide. How can we tolerate that? Lynching in Brazil, the world may not know that, but lynching in Brazil is something that we see every single day in Brazil. There is a socially sanctioned anti-blackness that is part of the brazilian dna and that is what makes us to think again to make the point again here that bolsonaro is a product of this very tragic dystopian anti-black society
3: in some respects it appears to some of us that the migration from the heavily black northeast part of Brazil to Rio and Sao Paulo resembles the great black migration out of the south in the United States.
4: Yes. The south-southeast is the center of power in Brazil, the industrial power and the political power in Brazil. And most of the people in, in northeast Brazil are black or indigenous population. I myself I am from the northeast Brazil, and I had to migrate to Sao Paulo, where I grew up in a favela. So, police violence being something so normal, so ordinary, that we even didn't bother anymore. The geographical dynamics also explain the defeat of the Workers' Party, because most of the Bolsonaro's electorate were from the south and southeast Brazil, that are majority white. And if you think about the history of migration in Brazil, the south-southwest Brazil were the part of Brazil that received most of Europeans running away from first and the Second World War in, in Europe. So we have you now this is very interesting to think about this how the geographical dynamics of Brazil are expressed in this political party, how the Workers party's electoral base is mostly in the northeast Brazil, and Bolsonaro is more in the south-southwest. And also, relating to that, we see how the precarious conditions of the black people is also expressed through this geography because Bolsonaro is dismantling all timid social advancement that you had during the Workers' Party. For example, Bolsa Família, the family stipend that Lula da Silva created and leaped millions of Brazilians out of poverty. Bolsonaro dismantled that. And all this because he associated the North in northeast Brazil with the black population, the backward Brazil according to him.
3: In the same way that politicians in the United States associate food stamps and welfare and all social supports with black people and defeat those measures that way by that association.
4: Exactly. The same way that we have it the figure of the welfare queen in the United States, we portray black women as sexually promiscuous, uh, having too many babies, being dependent of the state. So this is a way that this anti-blackness is framed also through the discussion of poverty, because that is very important. The myth of racial democracy continues to be very strong among the society. Because also the way that they organise this racism is not so much through a racial language, it's through the language of the poor the Northeast. They will now also associate with corruption, with crime. Although you have no laws that discriminate people on the basis of race, there is a socially shared agreement from particular areas of the city being associated with crime, with disorder, and
3: then being subject to the genocidal practices of the Brazilian state. And this attack on the social sector, which is politically associated with non-whites, has devastated the public hospitals. And as you mentioned, Brazil, unlike the United States, has free public health care, but it's been defunded to a crisis point. Absolutely. After the coup against President Dilma Rousseff in
4: 2016, then President Michel Temer, former vice president that was behind the coup against President Dilma, he was quickly to put a 20 years frozen in public spending in critical areas such as education and public health.
3: What kind of organizing is going on on the ground in black areas of Brazil in response to this pandemic?
4: There are many, many efforts by black Brazilians to try to help to melhorate the situation. For example, I am from an organization called ONEAfro Brazil. And One Brazil is organizing campaigns trying to deliver food, hygiene products, help to pay utility bills for many Brazilians, mainly in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro's favela. So your listeners can also help us by going to the Black Agenda Report and see me asking you here also to put a link there to our fundraising program so people can help and donate to Brazilians, to Black Brazilians. But these stigmatized areas are the areas that we cannot afford to have a quarantine, social distance. How can we have a social distance in a place that is overcrowded, that lacks everything, that the state is only present through the military police? Black Brazilians have been always organizing against the police violence, have been always very energetic in denouncing black genocide. But our cries. Fall in deaf ears. We also is asking for our sisters, our brothers in other parts of the black diaspora. How can we make black death black Brazilians death being legible, being globally legible?
1: To send money to help black Brazilian families survive the coronavirus onslaught, Google Uni Afro Brazil. That's U N E A F R O. Brazil. Slavery in the United States was the nation's biggest business by far, and all of the financial sectors got their cut of the profit. Dr. Michael Ralph, director of Africana Studies at New York University, says the insurance industry was central to how white masters measured the value of their human property.
5: Initially, slave people were insured like cargo essentially someone would take out an insurance policy because if the cargo didn't reach the shores, you know, for a number of reasons, like due to weather calamity or piracy, or various reasons that the cargo might not reach safely, you know, people would want to recover most of the value of their lost assets. But I think what fewer people know about is that after the end of the domestic slave trade, insurance was transformed. In eighteen oh eight the slave trade to the U.S. was outlawed, even though slavery was still legal until the end of the Civil War or the Emancipation Proclamation, however you think of it. So after it was illegal, technically, to bring enslaved people to the U.S., people who had enslaved people in abundance could benefit by renting them out to other people who wanted slaves but couldn't no longer acquire them legally, and of course. Even after slavery was outlawed, people could kidnap free African Americans and settle them to slavery, or import them, smuggle them illegally. But for the most part, it was difficult to get access to enslaved people. So people who had them in abundance would rent them out to corporations or to other merchants and planters. And when they would rent them out, they would often insure them in case they got injured or died while they were in someone else's care. So after 1808, between 1808 and 1865, there was a thriving market and slave insurance. And often people think of slaves or slave people as livestock practically sort of like piece of burden and that slavery was just sort of mindlessly picking cotton under the hot southern suns, things like that. But when you look at the insurance industry, you notice that the enslaved people who were insured usually fell into one of several different categories they were either artisans like blacksmiths, cobblers, or chefs. They were working in really hazardous and really lucrative industries like coal mining, railroads, steamboats, or they were bureaucrats like people who managed households for generations like a domestic worker, a butler, a barber. So that demonstrates that people who were insured were understood to have a skill set That was highly valuable in the marketplace.
3: Yes, insuring an enslaved person is different than insuring a free person. Usually insurance for most people is based on what their expected earnings would be over a lifetime. But enslaved people didn't earn money for themselves.
5: Right, it's a great point. So I should say that like, part of the reason why you know this research caught my attention is because I noticed how people's skill sets, their lives, are valued. And I noticed that historians would often say, well, I'm interested in life insurance but not slave insurance because slaves were property. But when you look at the way that, enslaved people were valued, you see that it was based on these skill sets that I mentioned. But, yeah, it sort of contradicts what most people think about as insurance because there's a reason why you can't insure Someone else's life because you could just kill them and collect the policy, right? So there are very specific conditions under which one person can benefit from the value of another person's insurance policy. And in fact, there was a British statute called the Life Insurance Act of 1774. It was also called the Gambling Act of 1774. And it said that you cannot take out a policy in someone else's life unless you have what's called insurable interest. But under the laws governing enslavement, there was a sense that a slave owner did have insurable interest on the life of an enslaved person, so the monetary value of the life of the enslaved person belonged to the owner and not to the enslaved person. So in that sense, that's what makes it possible legally for someone to take out an insurance policy on an enslaved person. But interestingly, there's something called corporate-owned life insurance, which there are many companies, it has been revealed, had insurance policies on their employees. Sometimes the employees didn't even realize the company had an insurance policy on them, there have been different situations. There's a famous case with MG Bank where the, after the person, the worker passed away, a check was sent to the home of the family by accident. It was meant to go to the employer. But the insurance company sent the check to the wrong address. And so that's when the person's spouse discovered that there had been an insurance policy on the deceased without her realizing it. And then the question, it begs the question, well, how could someone take out an insurance policy on someone else's life? And it's because corporations are understood to have insurable interest on their workers now you know a lot of different companies have had these policies at different times nestle walmart mcdonald douglas various companies and they've moved away from these policies in part because of the sort of public outcry and criticism about it but uh it's important to note that when these policies were in operation for these companies they were legal and rick perry when a former u.s president US candidate and also a former governor of texas when he was governor of texas he had actually proposed taking out insurance policies on public school teachers through the Swiss firm UBS, and he thought, well, this is a way to generate revenue for the state, that when these public school teachers retire, the state will benefit from the value of their lives that we take out insurance policies on them before they pass away. And it was the same logic. and He understood the state to have an insurable interest in public school teachers as their employers.
3: So slavery has had a profound impact on business thinking and practices in the so-called free market.
5: Right, exactly. There are other scholars who are making these connections as well, obviously. One book that comes to mind on precisely that point, Caitlin Rosenthal, has a, a recent book out called Accounting for Slavery, and she's showing how a lot of people often associate accounting with industry and factory work or sort of financial firms, but she's tracing connections between the accounting industry and and management strategies used on plantations in the antebellum period. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note how financial forms evolve over time and are adapted to different purposes.
3: Scholars have pointed out in recent years that U.S. slavery was backed up by very sophisticated financial instruments that were held by investors and institutions all around the capitalist world. Yes, it's very true. I mean,
5: I think that sometimes people have treated slavery as a kind of rudimentary or unsophisticated style of economic growth without realizing it's connected to all different kinds of industries and that the idea of capital was central to how slavery worked. I mean, when you think about what it means to insure an enslaved person, it's actually a better financial decision in terms of generating economic growth than insuring other kinds of property because an insured person is the only kind of property that can improve value over time based on skills they learn. Like other kinds of property usually when you insure property unless it's a specific kind of antique the value of the property will depreciate over time but enslaved people who are insured for their skill sets their value increased over time. It's like one of the categories of enslaved people who got more and more valuable as they got older like a blacksmith who have been blacksmithing for 10 years at age 30 is not usually viable as a blacksmith, the a blacksmith for 20 years, at age 40 or something like that. So you notice that as the value of the skill set increases, the value of the enslaved person increases. So I think it's one of those examples where people in the marketplace appreciated the ingenuity and intellect and skill set of enslaved people even more than, let's say, people in the sphere of law or people in everyday life. Like there may be notions and discourses about African Americans as ignorant and unintelligent, but in the marketplace there was a clear emphasis on generating as much capital as one possibly could generate from their tremendous skill sets and ingenuity.
3: Yes, many people do think in terms of slavery being almost entirely picking cotton work, when in fact, the whole Southern maritime intercoastal trade was dominated. It was 95% enslaved blacks, many of them rented, and the railroads were almost entirely manned by black people. In fact, basically everything that was made in the South was made by slaves.
5: Yes, great point. And also, it's important to note that there are a lot of northern investors, and Northern financial firms with ties to enslavement in the Caribbean. Uh, Peter Hudson at UCLA is doing fascinating research on ties between the financial industry and slavery in the Caribbean. And then also in the U.S., obviously, Northern financial firms profited tremendously from that. So I think it's important to look at it as an interconnected system. You know, oftentimes the South is treated as sort of stuck in a bygone era with this investment in enslavement. And in fact, it was kind of not just a national, but international system. But you're right, too, of course, that so many different industries were shaped by enslaved workers. And in fact, the laborers, let's say, in in the maritime industry, as you noted, occupied a broad range of jobs and skill sets. You know, some of them were like chefs on steamboats, some manned the engines on steamboats, some were domestic workers in a kind of hospitality capacity. In other places like North Carolina, some were sailors, they worked in the shipyards at many different levels of the maritime industry and in many different capacities. And slave people were sort of essential to how that was one of the most lucrative industries all throughout the 19th century.
3: And in fact, the slave codes in the South can be better understood in terms of the management of valuable property rather than in racial terms of animus?
5: Yeah, I think it's sometimes there's an assumption that African people, people of African descent, have been exploited in precisely the same ways over time. When, when you look at both at the law and at different kinds of industries, you see people adapting to the mobility and the different kinds of maneuvers African people have undertaken. So, for instance, people often refer to the laws governing children offspring of an enslaved woman and say, well, you know, there's a one drop rule If a child was born to an enslaved woman. This Virginia statue from the 17th century proves that that child would always be a slave. But what people often overlook is that that statue was actually passed in response to a particular kind of scenario. So for instance, there was a black man who was an indentured servant and he had a baby with an enslaved woman who was also African. And when the baby was born, they had the baby baptized, They did everything that free people do with the baby, and then the owner of the woman tried to claim the baby as a slave, and they went to court and they won their case. And the court said, no, when they had this baby, they did everything that free people do with the baby, and this child is free, and the father's free. So after that, they passed a law saying that any child born to an slave woman would be a slave, but they had to pass a law in response to the fact that that law was not already on the book, so to speak. And I think One of the stories about the insured enslaved people is that they often had tremendous mobility compared to plantation slaves, for instance. You know, like if you're an enslaved carpenter, you might walk 50 yards to work, 100 yards to work. You might work alongside just another person. Some of the enslaved coal miners worked along free white coal miners. And there's an interesting paradox there uh, that relates to capital, as you suggested. There could be scenarios where, a coal mine exploded and they might only publish the names of the two free white coal mine workers and not the 38 enslaved black coal mine workers because technically they're property, they're slaves. Their names aren't put in the newspaper. On the other hand, the enslaved coal miners would be insured and the white coal miners would not be. So you could argue that the enslaved coal miners were more valuable to the company than the white miners. So there's an interesting connection between race and value and legal standing, but it's not necessarily the most obvious ones and it's not the ones that people kind of frequently assume they would be.
3: Some black folks speak with pride about the rise of black life insurance companies. But you write that W.E.B. Du Bois himself was worried about black life insurance companies because they might lead to the demise of black mutual aid societies. Yeah, I think that it's important to note that you know insurance companies, particular life insurance
5: companies, market themselves as available to people in times of crisis and as an opportunity to have this tremendous security for your assets or for your life, which is the greatest asset for most of us. But in practical terms, life insurance companies are designed to generate capital and to grow capital and to, to make profits. So, for instance... Malcolm X's father was famously murdered by a white supremacists. The insurance company ruled his death a suicide, so his family was not even able to collect on the policy that he had. So, part of my research is about forensics, partly because it's the kind of inquiry that happens in the case of an accident or a death that determines what kind of transfer of value there will be, or if there will be one. But life insurance is not the same thing as say mutual aid. You know, in fact, the life insurance industry in the U.S. really gets underway in the 1830s, 40s, and really it's probably a response to, I would argue, slave life insurance sort of helping people understand how skills can be valued and monetized, but also urbanization. Like a lot of people are leaving agrarian communities where they have strong networks and family ties and they're moving to cities in search of work, but if they die, they get injured, you know, while they're at work in the city and they don't have family, they'll be stuck. So they're taking out insurance policies to make sure that their families can have something if they die in the city and don't um, have any other kind of security. But so mutual aid is what's replaced by life insurance. And in the absence of life insurance, as we know, black people, other marginal people, people from other parts of the world have used all kinds of mutual aid societies, sometimes just burial societies to sort of pool resources, to have a funeral for someone they care about. Sometimes church communities function as kind of financial savings. Um, society. all very many versions of it. I remember one time I was doing this research and using archives in Louisiana, and I just happened to be in a cafe working, and I met some you know middle-aged African American guys from from Louisiana, and they said, you know, what are you working on? And I started talking about it. And I told them I research insurance, and they were kind of struck by this because they sold insurance, you know, they're insurance salesmen. But you know, once I realized I was interested in mutual aid and insurance at different levels, they started telling me stories about their parents, how so their parents grew up under Jim Crow in Louisiana and how their parents had belonged to these different clubs and societies where they basically just paid dues and pooled resources, and they would have like a... For their parents, the club was like a gym that they rented out every week on a Saturday. And everything that they had done during Jim Crow was sort of like mutual aid societies coming together, pooling resources in one form or another. So obviously there's a big difference between mutual aid and the idea that your family, community, people who care about you Will be there few you in times of crisis, and insurance companies which market themselves that way, but then in fact often I mean the whole insurance model is to generate profit by denying new claims, so in some ways, it's to opposite mutual aid and for that reason, I think it's interesting that at the height of the Occupy movement, there was a call to return to mutual aid, and there's an investment in the language of mutual aid as a kind of critique of finance capital, and I think in many places where people are critical of the violences of capitalism they resort to the language of mutual aid and I think it's safe to say that mutual aid in a way is sort of like the kind of solidarity and security that people find in order to escape or contest violent exploitation. So one thing I think is important is life insurance comes about basically in the last few decades of legalized slavery. And as I mentioned, enslaved people were considered property legally and that is kind of overlap, you know, free citizens contracting life insurance. And then after emancipation, even formerly enslaved people can have life insurance. But in a way, you could argue that life insurance is kind of the democratization of the monetary hierarchy that had governed slavery. Because you go to a slave auction, you see people being sold for different amounts of money. And it's clear that there's a hierarchy in monetary value that not everyone's life is worth the same amount. But in the free society, you know, there's a language that all people are equal. But to an actuary or to an underwriter, our lives are not equal not all equal because some people have these health factors, these risk factors. And, you know, ultimately, the value of a life insurance policy is based on projected future wages. So if you make extraordinarily more than someone, exponentially more, your life insurance policy will be worth a lot more. And so in free society, we have sort of privatized this monetary calculus in lives and this hierarchy in lives. And we talk about being free and equal, but in fact, Our lives are not at all equal to each other. And I think that both in insurance policies and these actuarial models, but even in things like, you know, the treatment by police and things like that, we can see in practical terms that people's lives aren't equal, and yet the discourse of equality camouflages that. So, you know, a lot of times people think about slavery as having been abolished, and I think of it more as sort of having been privatized and democratized in the sense that the calculus used to assess a life is private because it's based on confidential health information and salary information, which is also private. And so we're not aware of the fact that there's a huge gulf in the way our lives are measured because it's based on private information. So, you know, I think it's worth noting that since the end of legalized slavery meant the privatization of the calculus and the monetary value of human lives.
1: That was Dr. Michael Ralph speaking from New York City. Most people in the United States were born under the care of professional doctors and nurses but midwives played a huge role in childbearing not so long ago. Dr. Sasha Turner, a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, has written a book on midwives and the role they played in helping Black mothers give birth during and after slavery in the Americas. Turner says midwifing, or midwifery, was the norm before professional medicine took over.
0: Most babies up until the end of the 19th century were delivered by midwives. Modern medicine, modern gynecology and obstetrics practices are really very recent interventions. So we're really thinking about the turn of the 20th century where we're seeing a shift towards babies being delivered either in hospitals or being delivered by obstetricians and gynecologists. Uh, So the vast majority of children in North America, as well as the Caribbean, were in fact delivered by midwives. If we think of uh, states like Alabama, uh, Mississippi, these are the predominantly or the states that have larger black populations we do sort of see a high percentage of of Black midwives within these spaces. And again, we can make the connection to slavery as well. Uh, There is an investment in childbirth. And so most of the midwives that we're seeing emerging in these spaces are actually of African descent.
3: So when you speak of this general hostility towards midwives, you're not talking about the communities that the midwives operate in. Those are communities they come from.
0: That's right. So when I talk about the hostility towards midwives, this is more a hostility that's coming from men and then sort of the more institutional hostility. So when I say the hostility coming from men, what I'm talking about are what they called in the 18th and 19th century, man midwives. And man midwives refers to men who were attempting to gain a foothold within the practice of uh, delivering babies. And so the first kinds of hostility that we're seeing are coming from men who are attempting to gain access to women's private birth chambers, men who are attempting to gain access to women's bodies. So this hostility is generated first and foremost by this attempt to gain access to women's bodies to gain access to women's private work chambers. And as medicine becomes professionalized, you see a shift away from just the individual bearing these hostile uh, responses to midwives, and it's now becoming an institutionalized practice to say, well, midwives are, they're basically doing more harm than good for mothers and their infants. You should trust the doctors. You should trust institutional medicine.
3: In the article that you wrote for Black Agenda Report, you point out the death of numerous infants in Jamaica and the fact that maternity complications have been on the rise for over 20 years in the developed world. What's the root of these problems in giving birth?
0: So the problem of negative health outcomes for mothers has several causes. So we could think about it in historic terms, in the sense that one recent study, for example, talks about the lack of integration between midwives and institutional medicines. So in this study, where a comparison is done between places like Great Britain, Sweden, Norway, and France, where you see more positive health outcomes for mothers, one of the key difference for that is that within these spaces, you have midwives being integrated within the healthcare system. So you have midwives who essentially are managing or the primary managers of the childbirth process. In other places like Jamaica or even within the United States, states like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Georgia, you're actually seeing, again, this hostility between institutional medicine and midwifery. And so what you have in those spaces is a lack of integration between midwives and the healthcare system. So one of the reasons from these larger studies is that you don't sort of have midwives as primary caregivers. And there's a lot more emphasis on interventionist medicine and less sort of attention to the specific needs of the mother. If we think more broadly in terms of the racial factors that have implication for maternal health outcomes, there are underlying factors beyond the kind of care that is given. So some of the most publicized cases, for example, where we see relatively wealthy or socioeconomically better placed women with higher education, where they also have low birth outcomes. One of the explanations is that the kinds of health conditions, whether it is diabetes, hypertension, so a series of health factors are compounding the, the poor health outcomes uh, for women. So it is a very complicated case or the reasons why we're seeing such high levels of maternal mortality or better put, the reasons we're seeing such high levels of poor health outcome for mothers on the rise in places like Jamaica has to do with a complex set of factors that are both historically rooted and rooted within the sort of, let me rephrase that, so it's historically rooted in terms of the care that women are given and it's also rooted within the kinds of health conditions that plague these women.
3: So clearly, you think that midwives are part of the solution to the problem of high maternal mortality. But where is the pool of midwives or potential midwives? Where do you find them in a society like the United States?
0: So midwives are there. So the kinds of hostility that we see towards midwives come from outside the community. Uh, If we sort of go on the ground within these communities, there are midwives within the communities, um, again, because midwifery is understood as community-based care. So if you go within these communities, you do have midwives who are there. Part of the problem, and again, this goes back to the institutionalization or professionalization of medicine, is how midwives are being certified. So there are women who are interested in becoming midwives, and there are women quite capable of managing the process of childbirth. But the general problem is in the certification. So you have state requirements that make it extremely difficult for women to become licensed as midwives. And again, this speaks to the long historical hostility of institutional medicine towards midwives. So midwives are there on the ground, but of course the problem is with the licensing or the certification of these women who are interested in practicing midwifery.
3: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.